You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Armageddon, God's way to everlasting peace. Now, this episode is approximately an hour long. Over 3,000 years ago, God promised to fill the earth with his glory. The state of the world right now is, quite frankly, so far removed from that statement. Step by step, events which are recorded in the Bible are outlined in this episode to show God's plan and purpose with this world. Now you see, Armageddon is just one of those steps which will ultimately end in everlasting peace. The Doomsday Clock is a hypothetical timepiece that sits in the lobby of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist Officers at Chicago University, and it's used to measure how close the world is to a global catastrophe. It was founded in 1945 by the University of Chicago scientists, uh, those who had helped in the development of the first atomic weapons in the Manhattan Project. And they used the imagery of the apocalypse, midnight, and the contemporary idiom of nuclear explosion, the countdown to zero, to convey threats to humanity and the planet. The decision to move or to leave in place the minute hand of that doomsday clock is made every year by the Bulletin's Science and Security Board in consultation with its board of sponsors, which includes 13 Nobel laureates. And that clock has become a universally recognised indicator of the world's vulnerability to catastrophe from nuclear weapons, climate change, and disruptive technologies in other domains. And since its debut in 1947, the bulletin has reset the minute hand on the doomsday clock 24 times. And you'll see them on a graph shortly. The doomsday clock setting was moved again most recently on January the 23rd, 2020. And here is the unveiling of that time. The bulletin is thus joining with tomorrow's leaders and today's most authoritative political ones to assert that the current environment is profoundly unstable and urgent action and immediate engagement is required by all. We are here this morning to update you on the doomsday clock and our concerns about the challenges posed by man-made threats to our existence. The Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists sets the doomsday clock each year to help answer two questions. Is humanity safer or at greater risk this year compared to last year? And this year compared to the nearly 75 years we have been setting the symbolic clock. November 2020 will mark the 75th anniversary of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, an organization founded by scientists 
and joined by journalists, religious leaders, political leaders, and civic leaders and activists around the world committing to ensure, committed to ensuring that science and technology are used to advance a safer and healthier planet. Since its inception, the bulletin's doomsday clock has been measured in minutes and was set two minutes to midnight in 2018, the closest it had been to midnight since 1953 for both the, a time when both the US and the Soviet Union had tested hydrogen bombs. It has been set as far away from midnight as 17 minutes to midnight at the end of the Cold War. When the board kept the clock at two minutes to midnight in 2019, we argued then that the global situation was abnormal and that this new abnormal was simply too volatile and too dangerous to accept as a continuing state of world affairs. Today, we feel no more optimistic. In fact, both the nuclear and climate conditions are worsening, and we note that over the last two years, we have seen influential leaders denigrate and discard the most effective methods for addressing complex threats, international agreements with strong verification regimes, in favor of their own narrow interests and domestic political gain. By undermining cooperative science and law-based approaches, to managing the most urgent threats to humanity, leaders have helped to create a situation that will, if unaddressed, lead to catastrophe sooner rather than later. It would be a privilege and an honor to move the hands of the doomsday clock away from midnight, but our current situation does not warrant that. The doomsday clock continues to tick forward, requiring us to recalibrate both our clock and the urgency we bring to today's challenges. As far as the bulletin and the doomsday clock is concerned, the world has entered into a realm of a two-minute warning, a period when danger is high and the margin for error is low. To move the clock closer to midnight moves us into a period that requires newfound vig vigilance and focus from leaders and citizens alike, as if every second matters. The moment demands attention and new creative responses if decision makers continue to fail to act, pretending that being inside the two, minute war the two minutes is no more urgent than the preceding period. Citizens around the world should rightfully echo the, world, the words of climate activist Greta Thunberg and ask, how dare you? With this in mind, I'd like to now ask Jerry Brown, Mary Robinson, and Ban Ki-moon to approach the clock to reveal the 2020 time. Today, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moves the hands of the doomsday clock. It is 100 seconds to midnight. One hundred seconds to midnight. And they, on their website, have got this communique. They say to leaders and citizens of the world, subject, closer than ever, 100 seconds to midnight. Civilization-ending nuclear war, whether started by design, blunder, or simple miscommunication, is a genuine possibility. Climate change that could devastate the planet is undeniably happening, and for a variety of reasons that include a corrupted and manipulated media environment, democratic governance, and other institutions that should be working to address these threats have failed to rise to the challenge. The bulletin believes that human beings can manage the dangers posed by the technology that humans create, 
Indeed, in the 1990s, leaders in the United States and Soviet Union took bold actions that made nuclear war markedly less likely. And as a result, the bulletin moved the minute hand of the doomsday clock the farthest it has been from midnight. But given the inaction and in too many cases counterproductive actions of international leaders, the members of the Science and Security Board are compelled to declare a state of emergency that requires the immediate, focused and unrelenting attention of the entire world. It is 100 seconds to midnight. The clock continues to tick. Immediate action is required. That was back in January the 23rd. If they met again today, do you think that minute hand would stay, move backward or move forward? Is humanity safer or at more risk than on January the 23rd? And I'm sure none of us would deny that we are living in an increasingly dangerous world. Things are not getting better. With the current COVID-19 pandemic, our anxiety levels are being stretched again. And us are immune. Health, environmental, political, financial, family, loneliness, violence, substance abuse, the uncertainty of change itself. The issues keep compounding like a big storm arising, like a great big wave gathering its momentum ready to crash down upon the beach. The clock continues to tick. It is 100 seconds to midnight according to the bulletin and has never been set closer before. Well, tonight's address is to help give some clarity to where the world is headed. Not to scare you with doom and gloom, that's easy. The planet will not be devastated by a civilization ending nuclear war or by climate change. But, as our title suggests, God clearly shows the time we're experiencing and those events that we are witnessing are all leading to a final crescendo after which the storm of wind shall have ceased and then finally there shall be a period of great calm. But the world will have to weather the storm first. And we live in an age that refuses to acknowledge that God is the great creator. Man has turned to his own moral compass, throwing out biblical principles and replacing them with his own. God is being left out of the picture altogether and the effect of this is evident in a world becoming more and more anxious for what may lay before it. Therefore, for any meaningful change to occur, it will require his, that is God's, intervention. And a great demonstration of his power to turn the inhabitants of the earth to him and to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the future king over all this earth. And this intervention will occur at a place called Armageddon. The psalmist, as you see there up on the overhead, beautifully paints the same. True peace can only come with the blessing of the God of Israel, and that blessing will only come to those who love him and trust him and who are faithful to his word. You know, it was in Numbers 14 and verse 21 that God swore by his very existence that one day he would fill this earth with his glory. He declared to Moses, he said, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with my glory. That statement should give us an absolute confidence also that this world will not be devastated by a civilization ending nuclear war 
or by climate change. God will ultimately fill this earth with his glory and he has sworn by his very existence that that is what he will do. So we don't need to be concerned that this world is somehow going to be annihilated with everything that's on it. But then you say, this was a claim, wasn't it, that God made 3,000 years ago. And if we take that claim and compare it with the world that we live in today, we must say that that's a bit of an overstatement, isn't it? That this earth is filled with the glory of God. Does that mean that God has failed? Well, definitely not. For God, since the first day of his creation, has been working on a plan to bring his purpose with the earth to a reality. That plan also involves his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, returning to the earth to set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and to commence a reign from Jerusalem in peace and righteousness, a reign which will encompass this whole globe. But before the Lord Jesus Christ is accepted as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and before his kingdom is established, great judgments shall be brought upon this world. And we saw, didn't we, in last week's presentation on world destiny revealed in the Bible, that Nebuchadnezzar, in the interpretation of his dream of Daniel 2, of a great image of a man which represented the kingdoms of men, was told this. The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it will break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, that is, the kingdoms of men, and it shall stand forever. So God's not going to be ignored indefinitely. God's judgments in the nations will be severe. They need to be in order to turn all nations of the earth to him. And it's going to require dramatic and drastic measures to do that. This will be accomplished soon, as we already alluded to, in the battle of that great day of God Almighty, when he will gather the nations of the earth to a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is, is one of those words, isn't it, that kind of strikes a bit of fear into the minds of many people. It's a word that's used in titles of many films, fantasising on the end of the world. It's a word that's been used by political leaders referring to war. There's a quote there from MacArthur Douglas concerning um, <clears throat> Japan. I've heard it used more recently in the context of the standoff between America and China and Russia. And even the COVID-19 virus has been spoken of as the start of Armageddon. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as a dramatic and a catastrophic conflict. And you might be shocked if you didn't know that Armageddon is only mentioned by name once in the Bible. It's amazing well, how well known it is, whilst at the time, same time, how little understood. And that's because it's often taken completely out of context and applied to pretty well any major battle in the history of mankind. Well, Revelation 16 and verse 16, let's turn to that passage. <clears throat> As we've said in Revelation 16, verse 16, we find the only occurrence of the word Armageddon in the Bible. And in Revelation 16, starting at verse 
13, it reads, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief, Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. There it is, there's our word, Armageddon. And we read here in verse 14 that God is going to gather the kings of the whole earth to a battle, to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And that in verse 16, the name of the place where God is going to gather the kings to battle is a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So Revelation 16, verse 16, explicitly states that the word Armageddon is a Hebrew word. Okay, if I was to go to Strong's Concordance, it will tell me that it comes from two Hebrews, Hebrew words. Ha, which means mountain, and Megiddo, which was a fortified city located on the southern edge of the valley of Jezreel in the land of Israel. Before you put that in your margin, there's two major problems with that interpretation. You see, Megiddo is not a mountain. It's a hill. Not just a hill, it's a small hill. So it doesn't fit, does it? And none of the other biblical references to this battle have it taking place at Megiddo, but rather at Jerusalem. Instead, the word Armageddon should be viewed as a composite Hebrew word that can be broken up as three Hebrew words. Amar, a heap of sheaves, Gay, a valley, and Din, judgment. And if you put those three words together, you have the meaning of the word Armageddon, a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. Okay, well, on the surface, perhaps it makes very little sense. But when we understand that it's to be made up of these three words, what it does is to open up for us connections to other end-time prophecies. And we're going to see echoes of this verse in other places in the Bible where there is a clear reference to the same battle that is being spoken of about here in Revelation chapter 16. And most notably, these can be found in the prophecies of Joel at chapter 3 and in Micah and at chapter 4. So keep a hand, keeping in mind, sorry, that we've read Revelation 16, <clears throat> let's first turn over to Joel chapter 3. So, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Joel chapter 3. My Bible has it as page 1114. In Joel chapter 3 and verse 9, starting at verse 9. For Yahweh have spoken it. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty man. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. 
and thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Now I'll put the, what we're going to read uh, <clears throat> next up there on the screen because I've highlighted some key words which I want you to take note of. Let the heathen be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is a word which means God judges. For there will I sit to judge, there's a play on the word Jehoshaphat, all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And if you look at your margin, you'll see there next to decision, threshing. Okay? So multitudes in the valley of threshing. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision or threshing. What is threshing, you might ask? Well, threshing is the process of loosening the edible part of grain from the chaff to which it is attached. And it's a step in grain preparation that's done after the actual reaping. And it may be done by beating the grain, as you can see there um, in ancient days, using a flail on a threshing floor. So Joel 3, uh, verse 2, which we haven't read, but if you cast your eyes over it, you will, you'll see. And verse 12, speak about the assembling of all nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat for judgment. And in verse 13, we have mentioned that the harvest is ripe and it's now time to take the stickle to it. And in verse 14, we have mention of decision, of threshing, or of judgment. So did you notice an echo in Joel chapter 3 then with the words in Revelation chapter 16? Listen to it again. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. The word Armageddon refers to a valley. And in Joel, the Hebrew word used to describe the valley of God's threshing judgment is emek, a word which can also mean vale or open country. So to paraphrase Joel, he's warning of an event when the time is ripe and the harvest is ready that God will bring his threshing judgment to bear in the open space of his threshing floor. Okay, we also mentioned Micah. So let's have a look at Micah chapter 4. Okay, Micah chapter 4, you'll find a few page over, pages over, uh, page 1130, if you're struggling. So similarly, let's look at verses 11 to 13, where we read, Now, also many nations are gathered against thee, that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. Now, we'll just pause there. Zion is a place name in the Bible that's used as a synonym for the hill of Jerusalem, on which the city of David was built as well as for the land of Israel as a whole. But they know not, reading on, that the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, 
and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Well, have a look at some of the echoes across these three passages. You see there in Revelation chapter 16, Joel chapter 3 and verse Micah 4. We have a, a comparison of those three prophecies and we can see quite clearly that they are very much in sync with each other. You see there the kings of the earth and the whole world. In Joel 3, we've got all nations and all the heathen. And in Micah 4, many nations, many people. In Revelation 16, verse 14, God's going to gather them, and he gathers them together in verse 16 to a place in the Hebrew tongue called Armageddon. Joel 3, gather all nations, verse 2, assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen and gather yourselves together, verse 11. Micah 4, similarly, in verse 11 to 12, the gathering together of them. In Revelation 16, it spoke of the battle, didn't it? In Joel chapter 3, it's talking about the preparation for war. Wake up the mighty man and let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. There's the great day of God Almighty in Revelation 16. Joel 3 verse 14 talks about the day of the Lord. And Micah 4 verse 10, the Lord shall redeem thee. And our word, Arima, heap of sheaves, Joel 3, put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. And Micah 4 verse 12, the sheaves into the floor. Gay, a valley. Well, in Joel 3, it talks about the valley of Jehoshaphat. And in Micah 4, about the valley of decision. Armageddon, judgment. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Or Hebrew, threshing, figuratively, as we said before, of judgment. And again in Micah 4, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. So, what is Armageddon? Well, let's summarise. Armageddon is a place. It's a place where all nations will be gathered for war. God will have gathered them there to judge them. It's known, isn't it, as as the great day of God Almighty. And it's a Hebrew word meaning sheaves, valley and judgment. At this point, I'd like to make a little observation, which I hope will help. We've established that Armageddon is a place, a location, and at that place, there's going to be a great battle. You know, even today when a battle is fought, the battle is often referenced by the name of the place. For example, here in South Australia, we've had some very large bushfires. And the campaign to fight against them and put them out is actually given a name. The Cudley Creek Fire, the Pinery Fire, the Sampson Flat Fire. And all those names have to do with a reference point. In these examples, the origin of the fire itself. So if referring to the battle which takes place at Armageddon as a place, you might refer to it also as the Armageddon Battle or the Battle of Armageddon. So, where is the location of this place called Armageddon? You know, the fact that it's a Hebrew word is a pretty significant clue, isn't it? 
It suggests that it's a place in Israel that will be the location of this battle. And of course, Micah has already hinted that it is Zion or Jerusalem. But logically, all we have to do is to locate God's threshing floor. And it just so happens the answer to this is given to us in a short story concerning a transaction that took place between Ornan the Jebusite and David the king of Israel. You come back with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And here's this story, and it tells us of the location of the place that was originally a threshing floor, but was sold and thereafter was a parcel of land dedicated to God's services. 1 Chronicles 21 verse 18, Then the angel of the Lord commanded God to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord, where? In the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So I already should have some little uh, bells going off in our mind where we read their threshing floor. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons with him hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, and as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. And David says to Ornan, Grant me this place of this threshing floor, that I might build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it to me for the full price. And so the transaction takes place. David buys that um, little spot of land and basically then um, what Ornan did what, what David did then was to offer a, or build an altar there. It says there at the end of unto Yahweh, he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and he called upon the Lord and he answered him from fire by heaven by fire on, onto that altar, consuming that sacrifice. Okay, so David's bought some land, his threshing floor of Ornan, and he sets up an altar there. Well, 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that Solomon, who was his son, he was the next king after David to rule over Israel, that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And for those of you who are taking notes, I've included an obvious connection with Genesis 22. You'll see why up there on the screen. So on this parcel of land that had been the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite was to stand the altar of David. Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, and Herod's temple in the time of Christ. This is Jerusalem. So therefore, Jerusalem and its immediate surrounds will be the epicentre of this battle. And God uses the figure of threshing in Revelation, in Joel and Micah to convey the idea of gathering nations, that is the sheaves, and battering them until the bad, that is the chaff, is eradicated and the good, that is the grain which you want, remains. It's a graphic figure of God judging the nations in the valley of decision or the valley of threshing, as we've seen. So what, where and when is Armageddon. Jerusalem and its immediate surrounds will be the epicentre. It'll be the place where all nations will be gathered for war. 
It's God that will gather them there to judge them. And it's a Hebrew word meaning sheaves, valley, and judgment. But perhaps at this stage, you're not totally convinced that Jerusalem will be the focus of the Battle of Armageddon. Well, here's a few more references to that battle in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 14 and verses 1 to 2, Behold, the day of Yahweh, or Lord, cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against ah, Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. In verse 3, Zechariah goes on to say, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. Still not convinced? Well, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 also paints a similar picture to that of Revelation 16, of Joel 13, 3, sorry, of Micah 4, and of Zechariah chapter 14. We're not going through Ezekiel 38 or 39 in any detail tonight, but suffice it to say, here is a breakdown of those chapters. And you'll see, or you pick up from this summary of Ezekiel 38 and 39, that it's also speaking of the same battle. And again, when we read through it, it helps us to pinpoint the place, Armageddon. When we, we, we look through verses 1 to 7 of chapter 38, we, we see there that there's a catalogue of Israel's enemies, a confederacy of nations who will come up against them. We also find a small, that the small nation of Israel will not be totally without allies. And in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 13, there's a, there's a group described as putting up a token resistance. A few diplomatic questions are all they can put forward by way of a challenge. And not surprisingly, as the prophecy describes, this massive confederacy of nations coming up against Israel will overwhelm them. Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 9 Daniel chapter 11 verses 40 to 45 says that they will sweep down from the north along the coastal plain of Israel, they'll take Egypt and then they will double back to besiege Jerusalem. And that confederacy is going to plant its headquarters in Jerusalem. Daniel 11 verse 44, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to take away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. And once this confederacy of nations has located its headquarters in Jerusalem, the fury of God will come up in his face. Basically, the nations have gone too far. Israel is described in the Bible as the apple of God's eye. And he now comes to their defence. Ezekiel 38 and verse 19 reveals that the first and the most obvious manifestation of God's power is going to be a great shaking. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely that day, in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 18, which goes on to describe that great and terrible day of Yahweh, we're told the same thing. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Reading on, 
The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. So there'll be thunders and lightnings. And we had a brilliant demonstration of that last Tuesday night, didn't we? And again, a few rumblings today. In fact, just to rest your minds a little bit, there's a photo of a tree just near our property three days after it was struck by lightning on that Tuesday night. It's had 15,000 litres of water put on it and it's still burning. It's an amazing demonstration of power, isn't it, when we see those storms. But down in verse 21 of Revelation chapter 16, it also tells us that there will fall upon men a great hail out of heaven. It tells us that every hailstone will weigh about a talent. A talent is around 60 kilograms. So it's going to hail on that day, and these hailstones are going to weigh nearly 60 kilograms. Now, just recently, some of you might have seen some of the pictures that were posted by the residents in southeast Queensland when they were hit by a very dangerous hailstorm. It was described by many of them as a once-in-a-lifetime storm. I'm sure that's how they want to see it. And giant hail actually punched holes through their roofs and then kept on coming and went through their ceilings. Here's a photo of some of that hail. You can see it there in reference to a cricket ball, about the same size. But you know, the mass of that, if you're lucky, is probably around 300 to 400 grams. Let's say half a kilogram. The hailstorm that's described, the hail that's described for us in Revelation chapter 16 weighs a talent, nearly 60 kilograms. Now, yes, I do get thirsty when I talk. This is a camping container. It carries about 20 litres. If I filled that up and froze it, it'd weigh around that 20 kilogram sort of mark. So picture that coming down, and now times that by three in your mind, this is the size of the hail that is going to be sent from heaven in that day. It tells us so in Revelation chapter 16. Here's a little short clip of some of the damage that was caused just by those cricket ball sizes in Brisbane. This piece of hail came through the roof. The hail is like baseballs here. It is ruining our house. We've got holes in the roof everywhere. They are the size of baseballs. I think it might have been quite an emotional event for that, that lady. But what havoc can you imagine God will cause with a barrage of 60 kilogram hailstones? And Zechariah 14 also reveals that the earthquake will create a plain surrounding Jerusalem 40 kilometres long. Which means that men and women in every country on this earth will be devastated by the effects of that earthquake. And here, at the time of Armageddon, you have the heavens, which have just been opened in judgment, and underneath you've got the foundations of the earth, which are shaking, and these people have nothing that they can trust. When you come across to Isaiah chapter 24,
Isaiah 24 and verses 19 to 21. Again, a description of this day. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and throw like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the hosts of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Haggai 2 and verses 7 to 9. Thus saith Yahweh of armies, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith Yahweh of armies. The epicenter of this controversy, as we've said, is Armageddon. But the effects of God's judgments will not just be on those armies gathered there. Worldwide, there will be tidal waves, volcanic eruptions, floods, fires, and many other resultant natural disasters. Ezekiel 38 and verse 20 states that the mountains shall be thrown down and that the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. Tall buildings and mighty structures will crumble. The fear and the stress that we feel today will be multiplied many, many times over. And in every city there will be major havoc caused through interruption of essential services. Electricity will be cut off, no water will be supplied, no gas, no sewer to cope with the city's effluent, no water to put on the fires, no personnel or fuel for running machinery to remove the rubble. There will be no family left untouched the magnitude of this disaster. And Ezekiel 38 and verse 22 goes on to record, I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon many people that are with him, an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Just imagine what this will mean for those who survived the earthquake. It will mean more trauma, much more. And all of this will clearly be seen as an act of God and there'll be no human solution. No relief funds, no option, but to humble oneself before God and to change the view on him. This is the event when God's judgments are finally being poured out upon the nations, when he will settle his controversy with the nations and he will start his long program of judging the world with righteousness and filling it with his glory. And the centre of God's judgment is Armageddon. But those judgments are going to be felt worldwide. You know, if that's not enough on top of that, in Ezekiel 38 and verse 22, God says, I will plead against him with pestilence. And we've already read the same in Revelation 16. And again, in Zechariah chapter 14, you get this terrible plague that comes upon the armies in the battle of Armageddon. This plague is so horrible that it's a memory that is used to scar through the millennia to remind the mortals of the terrible battle of Armageddon. And in Zechariah 14 and verse 12, you know the context as the Lord stands upon the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. In Zechariah 14 verse 12 we read, 
And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Okay, so that's our armies, isn't it? Gathered there at Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. So literally, you have flesh just peeling off these soldiers. The elite sent to fight in the battle. They can't stop this. They are looking again at something they trust, their skin, which has always hung together and protected their body from harmful things in the outside world. It just peels away. Their hands exposing bones. The sun suddenly goes dark as their eyes are consumed in their sockets. They try to speak, but there's no words, for their tongue has also been consumed away in their mouth. It's not good, is it? It's a horrible plague. But read on in verse 13. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbour, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbour. What's happening to us? We have got to stop this. And their hand is raised up against their neighbour in a vain attempt to stop the plague spreading. They turn on each other. And this confusion which comes because of the plague, verse 15, and a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Their food source has all gone in exactly the same way. It's the plague which is reserved for the time of Armageddon. And Jeremiah 25 and verses 31 to 33 tells us that so horrific will be these judgments that burial or even lamentation for the dead will not only seem out of place, but a matter of no concern to the survivors who are so desperately seeking to preserve their own lives. There's enormous detail provided in the Bible concerning the battle at Armageddon. And God reveals these details so that we might be prepared for what will be the biggest and bloodiest war ever seen. Armageddon is the event of God's judgment upon the nations. The event when he will settle his controversy with the nations, and as we've said, when he will start his long program of judging the world with righteousness. But you might ask, why does God do this? Well, God will accomplish many objectives in this one event. And in particular, it will usher in a time of true peace. Remember, we made the point earlier that God has since the first day of creation been working on a plan to bring his purpose to fill this earth with his glory, to make that a reality. And this is the only way, because God's not going to be ignored indefinitely. God's judgments in the nations will be severe, yes, they need to be, in order to turn all the nations of the earth to him. And it will require dramatic and drastic measures to do that. And I'm sure you agree, some of those things that we've looked at tonight, they are dramatic and they are drastic, never seen before on this earth. And that will be accomplished. He will turn the hearts of all men eventually some are very hardened, it actually takes a little bit longer, but there's a majority whose hearts are turned in that day of God Almighty to him. 
So God will change the world's view on him and on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will also humble mankind so that they will give him and his son due reverence, a necessary prelude to Jesus' reign of peace. And so Ezekiel 38 and verse 23 finishes, Thus, at the end of this, will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and that they shall know that I am Yahweh. And Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Just have a look at Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 to 4. We'll look that up. Isaiah 2 and verses 2 to 4. And you'll see here the echo in Zechariah chapter 14. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Many people will come and go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, of Israel. And he will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that is Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Pivotal to the purpose of God with this earth is the return of his son, Jesus Christ. He will be that king. And in Luke chapter 1 and verses 30 to 33, on the occasion of Jesus, um, well, before his birth, but when Mary was told that she was to have uh, a son called Jesus, the angel says to her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. And you're going to call his name Jesus. The angel goes on to say, He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob, or the house of Israel, forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, disciples asked him if he would now restore the kingdom of Israel. And this is the reply that he gave them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He said to them, It's not for you, disciples, to know the times or the seasons which the Father have put in his own power. Basically, he says, just get on with the work. You'll receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be a witness unto me both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So the implication of Jesus' answer was that he would not restore again the kingdom of Israel at that time. Further, the disciples were given no answers as to when Jesus would restore the kingdom to Israel. Instead, they're told they would continue the work of Jesus Christ and that they would be a witness unto him unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And as the disciples contemplated their Lord's answer, a startling thing occurred. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And whilst on earth, Jesus Christ taught that he would depart from the earth and later return 
to the earth again. The, the apostles, his disciples, were eyewitnesses of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. And they also proclaimed in their teachings and letters to believers that he was going to return to the earth again. Many years later, the book of Revelation, we hear the Lord speaking in a message sent for the enlightenment of his servants, that they might know the things that would shortly come to pass. And in the closing chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, he again reminds his servants of his return to earth. He says, and behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work will be. You know, there's over 300 allusions to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ found within the pages of the Bible. From the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament through the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and then on by those of the apostles themselves, we can see that there is a clear and unmistakable and undeniable teaching of the Bible that Jesus will return to the earth again. Jesus Christ is coming. And the return of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth is pivotal to God's purpose with it. God will fill this earth with his glory, as he declared thousands of years ago. That involves a visible return of his Son to the earth, which will bring the change required for this to occur. Everything that God has made, both in heaven and on earth, justifies to his mighty power and his brilliant creative genius. However, man, the pinnacle of all that he made, still refuses to acknowledge him. And down through man's history, there's been very few who have truly bowed the knee and given thanks and praise to their creator. But God's purpose will not fail, even though man refuses today to acknowledge him. The day will come when every knee will bow before him. Isaiah 45 and verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So the Bible teaches us how this will finally be done and invites us to be a part of it. God is now inviting men and women, you and I, to believe and to obey him now. He's seeking a family on earth who will love him as their father and who delight to do all that he asks. On these faithful ones, God will bestow the gift of immortality and they will show forth his glory forever. Well, the remaining chapters of Ezekiel's prophecy are full of fascinating details of the divine arrangements that will be introduced into the earth at the re-establishment of the kingdom of God. Just prior to God's judgments being poured out upon the nations, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will return. And it's very evident from careful reading of this event in Ezekiel, in Daniel, Zechariah, Joel, Amos, and the context in which they occur, that Armageddon involves not just the war between the nations, but the return of Jesus Christ himself. The Bible shows some of the changes that will occur with the return of Christ to the earth and his rule after Armageddon. These changes include one world empire under one king, a new administration, which can be us. A world without fear and war. Children playing safely in the streets. There'll be no unemployment. There'll be contented living. The poor and the needy are going to be looked after. There'll be one true 
unifying religion. There'll be no more famine and there'll be extended life. So the return of Jesus Christ is going to bring about a change in this earth. The social problems will be solved and it will be a pleasure to live on this earth. Well, what should we do to be prepared for Jesus' second coming? Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the knowledge that contains the knowledge of the truth. It outlines God's purpose with creation and how we might be involved in this. So we must listen to the word of God. Hearing develops faith. And this faith which is developed in God and his word is reasonable. It's not blind faith, since from God's word we are able to see that he has fulfilled promises. He has fulfilled prophecies in the past. And so we can be certain that his future promises, that those prophecies of future events will be fulfilled in totality in the future. Yes, as truly as he lives, this earth will be filled with his glory. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen